welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, recorded a few weeks ago, I speak with Chris Rushbrook, Chief Bear at Northern Bear. We speak about Chris's career to date, the life lessons he has learnt along the way, including mental health, and how bad work experiences have driven him to set up his own company, which focuses on working with charities and companies with strong ethical causes. We speak about Colin the Caterpillar and what this can tell us about what charities could and should be doing with how they approach their supporters. The theme of this episode, though, is what charities should be thinking about when it comes to providing a digital offering to their specific audience. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, fundraising platform Work for Good, and the festive small business star match funding campaign. This year, there's a £50,000 match funding pod available. Head to www.workforgood.co.uk to sign up for free. So without further ado, here is my chat with Chris Rushbrook speaking about tips for digital. I'm delighted to be joined today by Chris Rushbrook, Chief Bear at Northern Bear. Chris, welcome to Charity Chats. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So maybe, Chris, if we can start talking about you, I love talking about myself. I'm going to ask you about you. What's your background? What do you do at Northern Bear? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of talking about myself, although I'm sure this next sort of 20 or 30 minutes might sound differently. Um, <laughs> but um, I suppose... My journey's been a bit of a bumpy one from where to where I am now versus where I started. Um, I'll go back as far as uni because I don't think anyone cares about my GCSEs. Um, but we, so I did advertising marketing at University of Lincoln. Um, and then I went from there to Holland and Barrett, where I did sort of, sort of four years formative um, career developing as a, as a marketing trainee there and left as a marketing manager. Um, I made my first bad career move from there, which was to a large um, pub group. I won't name them. Um, and I really struggled there mentally. So um, left there after about five months with depression. Um, oh, so it was a pretty, it was a pretty low point. Um, which Can I well, ask I about what kind of what, what were the kind of cultural traits that kind of led to that? Was it just, you know, kind of a, a very poor culture at that place or? I, th- I think so. Yeah, I think, I mean, I had, I had, in my opinion, um, a, a really poor manager who um, put all the pressure on me and gave me very little support. And if anything went wrong, was quick to point the finger. Mm-hmm. And then the wider culture felt very generally, well, not everyone, there were some lovely people there, but um, it generally felt quite every man for themselves. Everyone was doing their job and making sure they did that right. And they weren't really bothered about what anyone else did. Oh, wow. Um, and I think I was... I was a bit naive going into it and thinking everywhere everyone would be as they had been in my previous roles and be supportive mm. and try and help each other. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing or where to go to find out what I was doing. And I was just sort of trying to muddle through. Um, yeah. And it got to the point where I, you know, I didn't really want to get out of bed to go to work. Um, and I, you know, that felt wrong. So I went mm. and sought some help and, you know, um, was, was diagnosed with depression, which is thankfully the only time. And it was, it was causal depression and in inverted commas because um, the doctor was like, you know what's causing the issue, so you can solve it. You you can potentially solve it if you're able to remove yourself from that position. Right. Um, and I think that that being told I was depressed, I, I mean, I knew I felt low, but I didn't really depression even then. What 
10 years ago, maybe depression mm. and mental health wasn't quite on the agenda in the way it is now. Yeah. So you don't really think you, you didn't really think you were depressed. You just thought you're a bit, you, know, you didn't like your job. Mm. Um, mm. So that was a bit of a, a wake up call. So I, I quickly left there and moved on with my life. Cause I thought, you know, I was only mid twenties at that point. Um, so I didn't really want to dwell and fester. Yeah. Was that hard though, leaving in a way? Kind of, yeah, it's quite, yeah, it was, quite it was, scary, it was, the prospect of jumping ship, isn't it? The idea that you're, I mean, I've had it where well, I've, I've left a role. Um, I got to a, a job and it was a, it was a charity as well. Um, and within the, by the end of the first day, I realized I made a horrible mistake and I started looking for another job. And that yeah. was, um, you know, that, that was uh, quite scary, but it got to the point where my, my mental health was suffering so much. I think I handed in my notice without having a job to go to. I think it was the, the first and only time I've done that because it was, you know, yeah. it, was, it was worse to stay than to uh, the risk of not getting another job, which of course, you know, I did. So, Yeah, and, that, and that, that's why. I mean, I, handed, I left, I didn't go back into the office after that day. So I got signed off for a couple of weeks by the doctor and given some antidepressants and sent away. Um, and I started taking those. After two weeks, I was like, I don't, I don't want to go back into that. Mm. place like that it wasn't you know it, I, I didn't want to be taking tablets for the rest of my life and being miserable um and and being fortunate that I knew how to solve the problem I kind of did so I handed my notes in same thing nowhere to go but um it, it was it was a it was a scary thing to do because actually what what I did was I left a job from Holland and Barrett where I was full of confidence and felt confident in my ability Mm. So getting another job was easy because I also had a job. So I was, there was no, um, you know, no they drop. Couldn't, they couldn't I, see the desperation in your eyes at the interview. Yeah, there was a safety net. And, and yeah. I, I, left, I left there with nothing to go to and actually feeling really fragile, I suppose, mm. and, and, mm. and unsure of my, you know, was, was on about just a, a, a lucky bit of, was, it was just, just fortunate that I had good team yeah. around me and actually I was useless. Mm, um, so mm. I, I left there rock bottom and with no confidence. So actually finding my next role, um, I was very daunted by, and I spent a couple of weeks with no job sitting at the kitchen table, searching jobs and just feeling a little bit, you know, just feeling a bit down about it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but, but actually it was a blessing in disguise because I, the, my next move was in back was into the agency world. So when I was at uni, I always wanted to be working an agency mm-hmm. um and to that point obviously holner barrett and the pub company were both um client side in inverted commas yeah. um so i moved over to an agency and i started an agency in birmingham called life um and you started it yourself no no i started at an agency i'd be a very rich man if i started it myself because <laughs> they sold it for a lot of money about oh, really? eight years ago yeah um but no i and i, and I felt like you know, they 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 saved me. That's how I felt. It felt like they'd saved oh, well. me. You know, and, yeah. and I had a real connection with that place. Mm. Um, and they, um, I think they really gave me a really good grounding in uh, marketing and agencies and how well well run agency looks. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I left when I left there. I left to start an agency um, with a, a colleague at the time. Um, and that was when I started my first agency. So I left another job with no job to go to. Um, but you know, that, the, that business started off really well. And then we made what turned out to be my second poor career choice. And we merged with a more established agency. Um, 
who we felt we would be able to learn from and could sort of guide us in how we you know, progressed as owners rather than employees. Mm. Um, and that, that was a mistake as well. So for I'll, I'll spare you the story, but essentially I got kicked out of that business and by oh, no. the new director, yeah. um, who I didn't really know um, before we joined. So that all turned a bit sour. Mm. Um, so I found myself sort of jobless again, a little bit unsure of where to go from that point because I, I still had this desire to have my own agency. I felt like I'd started that journey and had it taken away from me and mm. quite unfairly. Um, so I kind of sat down and just reviewed, thought about my own um, life, where I want to go. Um, I had a, trying to think what what the timelines were in terms of children and all that kind of stuff. I decided I wanted to do it all again. I want to start again, um, have my own agency, and actually this time do it on my own mm-hmm. um, because I couldn't, for want of a better phrase, screw myself over. Yeah. Um, so I sort of started again and freelanced for a year and then took the plunge and left my freelance work and started Northern Bear in the, the form that it is today um, with a really clear, probably probably guided somewhat by those experiences mission of you know being a good agency being a good place to work um and doing good work and working with nice people um and people who shared that view on the world um and that's kind of where we are now so the northern bear is an agency who specializes in working with charities um and we help them with their strategies we create their brands we build websites and we also come up with and then run campaigns across you know whatever objectives a charity has normally fundraising we can help them with to you know create campaigns that actually increase their fundraising across all different channels and that's kind of where we are today all of what we do um is we want to work with businesses and charities who share our values so they have to have an element of good about them so they you know whether that's community impact or social impact or sustainability whatever it might be we always want them to have that that angle as well as you know making money for your business is fine but the reason we enjoy working with charity so much is because that you know there's a there's a level of context straight away if your if your whole uh, existence is to help other people or other animals or other the world in general yeah um there's a level of context and, and I think that makes for a nicer working relationship. And do you think the these causes that you're working with, does that help motivate you and your team as well, do you think? Is that a kind of a driver for you? Yeah, massively. I think the, you know, the the big thing with working with charities is you kind of feel like you're doing your bit, and most of the work we do, although you know we charge for our work, there's a positive ROI at the end of it, which ultimately means that the charity has more funds and therefore can do more good, which um, is the way we kind of connect the two things together. That's our way of helping them to do more good. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the driver behind it all is that you know, if we're helping, if we do, we're just doing our tiny bit within that charity's world to help them on their way. This is kind of going back a little bit to what you were saying before, but I'm just really interested in uh, in your kind of uh, kind of your personal motivations for actually going out and doing something yourself. Because I mean, for me, and I'm sure other listeners as well, you know, I've never 
uh, set out on my own. You know, I've, I suppose in a way we all kind of set out on our own in the kind of philosophical sense. But in terms of, you know, kind of uh, getting a paycheck, I'm going to companies, uh, charities, whatever, you know, wherever I've worked that have established, I'm, I'm going in as an employee. To set out on your own, to me, it's, you know, it strikes me as quite a scary prospect. But from the sounds of it, that's something you've always wanted to do. And is it, have you worried about that? Or has that kind of been uh, trumped by the worry of, going in as an employee with your experience, that negative experience you've had um, at that uh, pub group? It's probably, it started at university. So when we were at uni, I wanted to create an agency. Um, and we entered a, a, a competition. One of my friends and I went, entered a competition to, to win £10,000 as a startup fund for a company. Oh, wow. Um, which we didn't win. We came like, second or third. We got to the, to the final part and we, we didn't win. Um but, but, you know, that whole process of university and, and the the work that we did that was focused around agencies made me want to work in an agency. And one day I wanted to have my own agency. And I've had a couple of you know, side hustle attempts while I was working at, at, at businesses. But it's not really the kind of thing you can side hustle at. Mm. And I think that it got to the point where I, I, I kind of didn't see there being a massive risk. There's no massive startup cost to the to what I'm doing if you, as long as you've got a laptop and a phone and the internet yeah you can kind of make a start as a as an agency you can um, access freelancers to to help you with um, the skills that you don't have so there's no massive outset or outlay um, to actually getting going so I felt like the the only real risk was a few months without any money mm. um, and and which which isn't ideal but I was always of the of the mindset you know, when was it 2014-ish? No, th- yeah, 2014-ish when I first left employment and started a, started a business. I was just thought, I'll get a job. <laughs> if it doesn't work in two months, I'll go out and I'll get a job. I, could, I knew that the industry I work in, I could get freelance work within a week and have money coming back in. Hmm. So I think that the, the low, it was a, it's a low barrier to entry and a fairly low risk move in in terms of in in the general scheme of setting up a business it's quite low risk i think the what we do but it's always it's always been something i've wanted to do since you know like i say since about 1920 hmm. i always wanted to start and run a business and i didn't know what that business was going to be at that point um but it's always been i don't know it's just it's been inside that i wanted to do that yeah we we spoke back in uh, on episode 158 158 of the podcast we spoke to uh bill woolsey um, who's a uh, an American pastor, and he's involved in uh, kind of setting up churches and things like that in the states about entrepreneurialism in in charity. It sounds like what you've done, Chris, is is really kind of follows um, the the kind of the some of the guidance that Bill was giving, and and kind of speaks to kind of some of the things that Bill said in that podcast about going out and uh, kind of having a kind of a an instinct or a feeling about something you want to get done and then just, you know, having the courage to go out and, and start doing that, which is what you've done with um, the Northern Bear. And also I like the fact, I suppose one other incentive about going out signing something up yourself is you can set your job title because I think Chief Bear is <laughs> it's probably the best job title I've ever come across. Yeah, I don't, I don't like Job titles, they're so pointless, really. You can have, um, especially, I mean, in the world I inhabit, an executive can be, the very top dog or it can be the very first rung on the ladder sure um so you know the 
I could have gone for MD, which seemed a bit ridiculous when it was just me. Um, I could have gone for any title I wanted, really. But I felt like Chief Bear suits me much more. You know, it's much more me yeah. than any other title. Um, it's just a bit more relaxed and a bit more informal, which is mm. how I tend to be uh, or, or like to think I am. I'm sure other people would say I'm different ways. You've spoken a little bit about the work that you do in Northern Bear, but what types of charities do you tend to work with? What types of challenges are you seeing um, them uh, coming up against and how are you helping them to overcome those challenges? I think the uh, there's not really a type of charity to work with um, because every charity we've worked with is probably different. Um, and that probably makes sense that they all would be different. But there are there are three sort of two or three problems that crop up again and again, um, and the kind of things we hear are um, always fundraising. So if only if if we could raise more funds, we we'd be fine. Or um, quite often the web- websites are an issue, and especially COVID's accelerated all of digital stuff over the last eighteen months. So websites now are different to how they were eighteen months ago. Um, their role has changed quite a lot. So we find people are struggling with the websites or they're just not fit for what they need them to do anymore. Um, and then there's also usually a resource issue. So loads of great ideas floating around. What we find with the people we're working with, usually sort of mid to senior level people within the charities is they're all hugely passionate. They all work tirelessly, um, usually above and beyond what they should should be expected of them. And they've all got loads of ideas Um for how to make the get the charity to be able to raise more funds um but they're they're having these problems because they just haven't found that right answer yet um so they can't they can't consistently raise more funds or they flatlined or it's decreasing um or they can't you know they haven't got the time or budget to be able to upgrade their website or um you know they haven't found a way to clone themselves and there isn't any money to employ more people. So the resource is there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we try and we try and reframe the question to them um, and, and reframe the problem and perhaps ask a slightly more challenging question, which can be a bit more uncomfortable. And it's it's almost to say, how can we if, if we rather than saying how can we raise more funds, it's looking at why other charities are able to do so, why mm-hmm. can other is consistently find new donors and they're thriving but we're perhaps not either we're flatlining or we're decreasing or you know we're just not filling the bucket as fast as people are, are, are leaving or instead of how can we improve our website we we ask them what's the most impactful thing we can do in our digital channel to bring the most funds over the next six eight twelve weeks so we're looking at shorter term goals that we can then if they can drive more funds through that channel they'll have no problem unlocking the funds with the board of trustees or whoever it is that isn't that keen at the moment Mm. or the same you know how do we get all these amazing ideas done we're actually asking that with what you've got what can we do now to provide the additional income that would mean we can grow our team so we we just try and it's kind of prototyping i guess is it things like that yeah i suppose so and it's just sort of asking a different kind of question and Mm. and actually looking at what can we do now with what we've got to address the problem that you've got and unlock funds or bring more people in or uh, whatever it might be. Um, So I suppose 
you know, we we help charities who are struggling with those things and others beyond, and we help them to get the the best possible results they can in the shortest time possible, so that they can then address those problems and hopefully that will able enable them to thrive in a different way. And you mentioned before, kind of the websites have changed quite a bit over the last eighteen months. Is that, or, or at least I think you said the the kind of why people go to websites has changed. Could you could you elaborate on that a little bit more? What what are you seeing? There is a gradual change in the way people are giving, um, and and I've I've read a few reports on this that show over time people are people now through because of COVID. I, there's no other reason why cash donations are obviously massively down, partly because people don't carry as much cash anymore, yeah. partly because there aren't the events or the, they aren't, there aren't the buckets out there that used to be collecting the funds because people aren't going out as much. There aren't the events that used to be there. Um, but that's creating now a, a switch to online giving. Um, and a lot of charities haven't really had to have that in place before because they're, you know, they may have had an older demographic of givers or they may have had, um, you know, they just held events and that was their primary source of fundraising. But when that gets cut off, if their website wasn't ready, it's hard to then generate that income. Mm-hmm. And and then what we're seeing is charities switching to giving platforms, uh, you know, just giving Virgin money before it shut down, should I say? Yeah, yeah, um, shut down now, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah so pe- people turn to that because that's a ready-made solution. But the issue you have there is then um, donors don't remember you as well. They aren't mm-hmm. giving, They, you know, we, we talk about direct donors or direct, you know, direct to giver communications where we're talking direct to the giver to get them onto our site, because if we can get them on our site, then they'll give more, they'll give more often and you can communicate with them because you've got their details. Yeah. So, you know, the role of this, the, your website now is, is becoming almost a fundraising hub um, and, and a way of allowing your supporters to both engage with and give to the charity. There's is a very kind of a key point there, I suppose, where this reliance that, some uh, charities will have on third-party platforms to deal with their not only their donations, but they are inadvertently then sending people or delivery sending people to a, a website which is owned by a separate company, which you know maybe isn't the best way in some cases of uh, of showcasing what they're doing and um, you know and, and making those donors feel part of that cause. Yeah, and in, and in most cases understandably the the giving platforms take a percentage um and and the i think the the i can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head but something like there's a 25 30 percent less recall of the charity someone's given to if it's done through a giving platform versus direct on their website or direct to them at an event right okay. um, so it's it's not just um the reliance it's also the um, the recall, the awareness of your charity drops by them mm. doing that. They, you know, I think um, give and forget is the the term I think they use for it. They give, right. give give once and then they forget who it was and they don't engage again. Which I get, I guess, suppose that makes sense in terms. Of, it's probably not as big of an issue, uh, or maybe it is. But if if I'm donating through just giving or Virgin Money giving or whatever, because I'm supporting a mate who's doing something for a charity he really cares about, then if I'm ferried there by a charity because they haven't got a website um which a lot of smaller charities maybe can't afford or don't feel they can afford to have and then i'm giving directly to that charity as you said that then recall may arguably is, is a bigger concern then yeah well even even if they're giving like to a mate and i think that's part of the problem with the giving platforms and probably part of the reason why the recall is lower 
is because if your mate um, sends you a message and says, can you sponsor me? I'm running 10K for um, this leukemia research charity. Mm. It's your mate really rather than the charity. Yeah. Um, and, and so understandably, the relationship there isn't as strong between the giver and the charity itself. Mm. But I would argue that if if you can create a way that they go through your platform to give, you then have an opportunity to turn that one-time giver into a, a supporter and to make them you know, empathetic to your cause as well as um, to their mate and, and the reason that their friend's probably already doing it. tips do you have for our listeners chris uh, many of whom may uh, volunteer for very small charities with next to no marketing budget uh, what tips about the things they can maybe focus their time on evolving for their their cause well we we have a so we have a formula that we follow for all um all charities of all sizes um and it's 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 fairly simple in the way it's it's built and it's built in that way so that any charity can do any part of it any any point um, and the three key points to that formula um, the first of which is awareness um, so if if I don't know a charity exists it's impossible for me to support them because I don't know who they are in the first place um, once they know who you are you then have to um, create empathy with your cause so you have to find a way to make that person care about what you do enough to support you with their time or money um, and then the third part of that wheel is trust um so if once they know who you are once they care about you they then have to trust that what you do will impact positively on what you say it will impact in um and and i think if you aren't ticking those three boxes especially the first one um you're going to really struggle to get people to to part with their money or part with their time in in, in aid of your cause because quite frankly there are lots of charities out there um and it's a very competitive market which people don't really i don't think people talk about enough um so if you aren't making if you aren't working hard to get that pound it's going to go to someone else um i think within those three channels to i suppose to make it a bit more specific um from an awareness point of view social especially across the board but for for smaller charities it's your own little uh, free broadcast media tool you can create a following of people who care about your um uh, care about you um, and then you can talk to them about your message and i think there's there's four key things with social i think you have to make it relevant um and i think that goes through all all communication but i think it's also been shown over the last uh, probably over the last five years but especially in the last two years current affairs is impacting quite a lot on who people are giving to so um, mental health children Mm -hmm. and education charities yeah um as well as obviously nhs over the last 18 months have, have had huge increases in their giving and that's because they're part of the conversation around the effects of covid and what's been happening mm. so i think it's important to find your place and relevance within that conversation so that people can see where giving to you will help a wider agenda not just your own sure um consistency you know whether whatever channel you you're using on social post regularly whether it's three times a week or or twice a day just make a commitment to doing it and stick to it because the for whatever reason the social media platforms algorithms like that Mm. um engagement is really important social 
social media isn't just a broadcast media it's a conversation tool so i think you need to get involved in the conversation speak to people who um care about what you're doing engage with them engage with peers engage with competitors and actually be part of the conversation and probably most importantly is to be yourself and i suppose that's you know be true to the charity be true to what you're all about um and and don't get don't get sidetracked by trying trying to be relevant or trying to um, you know, crow, don't crowbar yourself in. If you don't fit, you don't fit. There are other things for you to um, get involved in. But yeah, be yourself is probably the most important thing. The caveat to all those other things as well. I guess that kind of that uh, need for authenticity as well with with how you're kind of talking to people, which I guess um, I, I suppose you know because it seems to be there's kind of quite a lot of kind of cynicism, isn't there, around. Uh, marketing and uh, marketing messages not just in charity sets but elsewhere as well um, I, I suppose one thing that kind of um i picked up on i was thinking about when you were talking there was uh, when you're talking about kind of engaging with competitors one example of that that i saw some time ago now was the colin the caterpillar um yeah. thing which is very funny and uh, for those that don't know it's worth checking it out on twitter uh, i think it was a number of supermarkets who were Initially, it sounded a bit kind of nasty, and I think there was some kind of legal proceedings in going through, but I don't know yeah. what happened, but I, I got the impression that things kind of calmed down, simmered down a bit through a bit of humour. Yeah, could be I think wrong. it was Aldi, wasn't it, as always, rocking the Aldi, boat. M&S. Um, yeah. yeah, I think Aldi were quite uh, quite good with Aldi created. Uh, Aldi created... They, they, they all started with Aldi creating their version of calling the Caterpillar. Right. And M&S started legal proceedings against... Aldi. that's right that's right and then there was a whole free i can't remember what they called that i cast. saw i saw something where that then they lined up like four or five different um supermarkets or similar kind of supermarkets that had similar caterpillars all yeah. different names so yeah, yeah yeah but i mean i guess my, the takeaway for me was like oh you know it's all okay and and uh and these different companies you know aldi particularly you're quite funny and I, I mean, yeah. you know, I don't know if that would make me a more uh, loyal shopper of Aldi, but uh, I guess it kind of speaks to what you were saying about maybe kind of authenticity and, and charities needing to find their 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 niche and their their audience and their tribe. I guess is that a way yeah. of looking at it too? Yeah, and we we talk about um, we talk about truth of a charity um, yeah. and how understand like being being afraid of your truth, regardless of how um, uncomfortable it can make people, and obviously charity by its very nature um is quite often a heart-wrenching thing to to show and to showcase and i think not being afraid to share the truth behind what you're doing and what you're actually achieving um is, is part of part of the empathy um the empathy part of our um wheel is very much about emotive storytelling and and truth and actually finding that truth and being able to frame it in a way that's compelling and take someone on a journey um and, and we we've got a fairly simple exercise which helps to do that and that's to say you know one what do you do um who do you help two what are the problems your beneficiaries face three what is the outcome of your support you know what do you actually deliver and then four how can people help you and that actually it's it's a i'll put it in an example so um we were at the dog's home and you know, they rescue re and rehome stray and unwanted dogs. One, what do you do? Two, what are their pro the problems their beneficiaries are facing? They're dogs who are often mistreated, they're homeless, and they're in physical, mental, and emotional need of support. Um, their services give otherwise 
um, condemned dogs the chance to be reborn, um, to start a new life and to get the love that they really, really so badly want and need. Um, and then you can help today by donating £20, which will pay for the life-saving vaccination of um, Charlie here, who's mm. been rescued from the streets of Basingstoke, for argument's sure. sake. Um, so it's kind of concise and emotive and yeah and you can you can use that and you can make it into longer form content you mm. can make it short form content but you can use that really simple process to just create little mini snapshots that can you know, if you tell a story well you can take a, a, a potential supporter from completely unaware through to aware and empathetic mm. and all you need to then work on is the trust and showing them that you can deliver against what you say you can deliver against um, so, you know, storytelling and using your truth and being, you know, that comes back to what you say, authenticity um, is really important. We've spoken about digital on the podcast a lot in the past. For charities seeking to identify how best to evolve their digital offering, either websites, social, as we've talked about, marketing messages, what are the first questions they should be asking themselves? Um, I think I've, I've already probably covered off social, um, but the recap, dedicate time, build a great and loyal core of supporters and just shout your message out there. Um, from a website point of view, I think probably three really key things are the quality of the website and the content that's on it. Um, direct to donor, uh, we've, we've spoken about already, but actually how do we make it easy for people who land on our website to give? Um, and then conversion. So people who land, how do we get them as quickly as possible to the point that we want them to be at so that they are either clicking to be a volunteer or to sign up for an event or to you know give you some money. Um, I think quality and content speaks kind of speaks for itself in terms of what it is. Um, but I think organizations across all sectors, not just charities, neglect their websites, um, which is which which is a bit mad when you consider just how many people are looking at your website, even if it's just for validation of who you are or what you do. Um, but for charities, I think it's even more important because it can perform so many critical functions to what you do. Um, it can be a source of information, a place to donate, a place to sign up for events, a place to support the charity, and in, in, in some cases, a direct way to deliver um, your services that, and, and the support that people are looking for. Um, so I think it's really important to regularly just review your website, make sure the content's up to date, make sure it all looks good. And that all feeds into creating the trust and empathy that we talk about in, in our formula. Because if if some if your website looks great, it's amazing how much that first impression has. You have something like mm -hmm. uh, the less than the time it takes to blink your eyes for a person to form their first impression oh, of really? you as a charity when they land on the website. They look at it, boom, they've made a decision on whether they yeah. like it or not mm -hmm. from an aesthetics point of view. Because they're not meeting you, are they? They're, they're meeting your, that's almost like a kind of an avatar of your culture and you as people and your cause and everything, I suppose. Yeah, it's your, it's your shop window. It's your, mm. you know, it's your way of, you know, if, if I want to find out more about Charity X, I Google Charity X and I look on my website. I don't go to an event straight away. I don't, um, I might go on their social um, but I'm, I'm going through to one of those channels mm -hmm. to get my first impression. So it's really important that that first impression is a good one. I think from a direct to donor point of view, that means, but it basically means getting support to your site to donate directly to you. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier, the positive effects of that it was actually an autumn edition 
of the Enfuse um, report was out yesterday, and they they gave some figures. So, sixty seven percent of donors' preferred method is giving direct to a charity via their website. Right. Um, and on top of that, giving direct, thirty seven percent more people remember who you are. Um, and when they give direct, that's when they give direct versus any other means. Mm. Um, and then, as we mentioned earlier, they're more likely to remember who you are, and they're also more likely to give more. Um, and I think the final kicker is if they give via your website, you then get their details. Mm. Um, so you're able to then nurture that relationship with them and yeah. potentially turn them into a, a longer term supporter. Well, and also I think the other thing that's been on my mind recently is you're able to more quickly, hopefully, depends on, you know, kind of the, the back end, I suppose, of your system, but kind of thank them. Because, you know, in some of the uh, situations that I've been in where you've got a third party processing your payments, um, you could be waiting a couple of days before you even get told they've made a donation. And so, uh, or or until you get the details that, you know, you're able to then follow up with them. And by then it's, you know, they've they've maybe even uh, forgotten, you know, who, who, what they, why they donated to you. So that kind of being immediate immediacy to to kind of keep that conversation going is quite key, isn't it? Yeah. And especially people are used to that now and people want immediate positive reinforcement or you know everything they want to be we want to be immediate we want immediate confirmation we want our shopping to arrive immediately we you know we're all we all want things now Mm. if you wait two days to say thank you they've forgotten they they could be they could have forgotten they'd given yeah it could be a positive because it reminds them but when they when they tick get you know when they send off their donation to you you know, you don't have to have an expensive, swanky website to be able to put some automation in place that sends an email that says thank you. Mm. That's fairly, you know, it's quite basic um, functionality that most websites that are well-built should have in, within them. And it's important to consider that whole journey of, you know, awareness through to trust, through to actually giving. Beyond that, you're then into, you then into reminding them of who you are, reminding them of why they care and reminding them, of what you do and just reinforcing that trust by showing them what you've done yeah. um, with, with their money and everyone else's money. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important. And I guess talking about kind of social before, and, you know, I suppose the, maybe one of the benefits of digital would we say is that it, there is a kind of an immediacy or a, you know, kind of a fairly swift understanding about what's working, what's not compared to, for example, your, your typical kind of direct mail, which, you know, takes time and money to put together and then sent out. And then you'll know three weeks later if it worked or not with social, with other digital, you can see in real time, I guess. Yeah. And it's also, um, it's also a more personal platform. So you're, you know, if you, if you get into a chat with someone on Instagram or Facebook messenger, you're kind of chatting to them in their personal space. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost it's almost as good as WhatsApp or or, or messaging someone. Yeah, um, you're kind of chatting rather than broadcasting, and that's why you know the whole idea of social media is to give you that feel. And and as a charity, it's important to leverage that, I think, um, and to build on it because you are trying to get an emotive message across. You're trying to build empathy. So if someone engages with you, it's important to. To, to build on that and just communicate and listen and share. And, 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 you know, it does come down to resource for it all, especially smaller charities. If you've got one person who's responsible for everything, or if you've got one person who's responsible for all of marketing, social media forms are, you know, a, a small part of that. So it's, you know, using your time as wisely as possible 
um, you know, you, you, everyone will know what their priorities are. And if social media falls at the bottom of that, then so be it. It's something that gets neglected. Um, and there will be a reason behind that. But I think social is a great channel for, for charities because it, it, it's so personal. So, Chris, what opportunities do you see for charities in the future and how could even the smallest start positioning themselves now to make the most of these opportunities? I think there's there's a couple of things. I think the first thing would probably be Generation Z or Gen Z. Um, I think the, the Enthuse report I mentioned earlier has some really interesting um, information in about giving and actually you know, much maligned millennials like me. Um, and Gen Z, you know, under 40s are the most likely at the moment to give to charity. Okay, um, cool. And they are also the most likely, they are the ones who have the best intentions. So they're more likely to intend to give to charity over the next three months. Mm-hmm. And they're also the more the most likely to give to multiple charities. So I think older generations are used to, um, it, in in lots of ways, they support one thing or they might support one or two charities and they will support those one or two charities for their whole life. My dad supports the RNLI. He yeah. buys their Christmas cards. He donates to them. That's his charity. Uh, so I think Gen Z and and you know they're our first digital native generation. They don't remember time without technology. They don't remember time without mobile. The, the older ones might, but you know they spend seventy five percent of their free time online. And I think wow. that we we forget them a little bit in our planning. Um, COVID has accelerated everything, uh, moved us all online much more quickly. And I think most of the things I've read have said that they've changed the digital landscape by over a decade in 18 months. So, you know, you think of all the things you can now buy online, Mm. you can order from your local pub, you can, you know, um, you've got top level restaurant dish batch, you've got top level restaurants sending out packaging, packages of food that you can cook at home. Yeah it's changed everything so much and actually the people who will have kept up with that are the digital natives it's gen z um and i think over i think some over 85 percent of them have given to charity in the last three months which i think people will be surprised by um to give a bit of context 62 percent of over 40s in the same time frame have done that Mm. um and i think that's really important to consider um and i think what what people in terms of the opportunity i think if you haven't done it in the last 12 months just review your audience who are you talking to at the moment is there a space for gen z and millennials in that if you're not already talking to them and what's your plan to engage with them they're digital natives so that's where you need to be so things like you know most of the things we talked about today social media websites they're the channels where you need to be. That's why you need to be talking to these guys. Mm. Um, so it's important if you don't have that infrastructure in place, you're missing out on that quite quite large opportunity. And I guess if if kind of people, small charities listening to this, very small charities, maybe uh, kind of small volunteer groups, I guess also then this speaks to, um, and if you find yourself listening to this and you're, you know, outside of that Gen Z camp, or if you don't understand some of these channels, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of, I'm still technically, I'm a, uh, what am I? I'm under 40. So yeah, I guess I'm a millennial. 
I think, I think I'm at the yeah. far end of that range. Yeah, just um, about millennial. Just about, yeah, millennial in name only. But uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, for, for anyone listening to this, and I'd probably put myself in this group, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on now, a lot of digital, a lot of social channels I've never even been involved in. And I guess then this speaks to the, the need for diversity on boards of trustees or um, among volunteer groups, isn't it? That, you know, we should be made up of of a, a diverse range of people so that we can hopefully have the skills and experience and knowledge of these new upcoming platforms and communication channels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I, if you think about, I, I, 10 years ago, I'd have considered myself fairly digitally savvy. Yeah. I knew all about social media. I knew all about, as it was then, I knew about, you know, tech, but it moves so quickly. You have every intention of keeping up with it, but, you know, I, uh, there are, there are, you, you only have to Google social media channels now. And if you're over 30, you probably won't have heard of 10 that are being yeah. widely used by, by people who are under 22 or under 25 or whatever it might be. Weibo. I'm probably going to show. Oh God, is that a real thing? Yeah, there's all, yeah I'd, I'd probably pronounce it wrong. There's probably people that roll in their eyes at me. So, oh God, dad's pronounced God, it wrong. What's this old guy talking about? Well, yeah, t- you know, TikTok didn't exist, what, three years ago? It was I've, never minor, been on, I've never used TikTok minor. in my life. Don't probably. go on it, it's a rabbit hole. But it's, <laughs> <laughs> I get stuck you know, these, on YouTube as it is. So. Exactly, all these channels are just, you know, if if you're over, if, if you're past that age whereby yeah. you're into these, you know, teenagers, find different ways to communicate because the parents aren't on that channel yeah, and, yeah. You know, they can have you know kept a mischief on there but they're then they're then carrying that through so you know we had what myspace and then facebook and yeah, then yeah. twitter and uh, vine has been and gone and been replaced with t- they they come and go so quickly having people in the business volunteers workers you know um trustees trustees i think probably are, are very much of a certain age, mm. um, you know, it's probably a I mean, there, yeah, generalization. No, but, but I, I think generally, generally, or... absolutely, yeah, there's a huge proportion of uh, white, late-aged blokes. Yeah, and if you're if you're trying to say, uh, Clive, I want twenty thousand pounds to do a TikTok campaign, that's, that's a tough sell to get that signed mm. off by a board of trustees who don't yeah. understand what that is. So I think absolutely. you know. I suppose it speaks to, again, the, the need for charities really to understand their audience, because I think rather than, from my perspective, rather than going after this idea of when charities come to you and say, so who are you looking to target? And they say everyone, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of when it comes to a digital marketing campaign, we want to get everybody involved. Well, you know, and, and that's a fallacy, isn't it? That, you know, you're not going to get everybody supporting your cause. You've got to find the niche. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely impossible. Um, everyone, I mean, charity, um, very much people who support a charity have normally been um, affected by or supported by a charity. And that's probably the most common reason why someone supports a particular charity is that they've you know, lost someone to a certain illness or they've they had a dog from that place or they, you know, uh, they know a relative who was supported through a tough time of their life by them. That's normally the the, the main gateway. And I think that, you know, what we talked about earlier around current affairs is probably having more of an impact now, probably because of, you know, the digital channels that are available, the communication channels are available now, um, make it, make all problems you can, uh, are visible and people can talk about those problems through different channels and actually 
you can recruit people who haven't been directly affected now with it to your charity. Um, and I think it probably segues quite nicely to what I, one of the other things I want to talk about was retailer thinking is, is how I've sort of framed it in my own head. And I think charities, the mindset of charities quite often is quite soft. And although they're, you know, they're, um, you know, if you think about the big charities and the, the, the work they do on TV, so Oxfam, um, cancer research, some of the hard hitting creative that's put out there on on the you know above the line old school channels, TV, newspaper, and all that kind of stuff. That's brutal, and and that's quite um, a brutal truth. The way they you know it's an emotive, heart wrenching sell. But I think generally underneath that level, if you're not one of those top charities, you're kind of fighting for the scraps of giving because you don't have the financial muscle to fight with those guys. So. And if you compare it to retail, if I want to buy a T-shirt, um, I can go to one of hundreds of retailers, but I might buy a, I might buy a T-shirt from seven different places over the course of a year. And we've already spoken about the fact that most, you know, a large portion of people, 40, you know, 20, 30% of people only give to one charity ever in their life. Right. And then beyond, you know, beyond that, the other 80%, might give to two or three or maybe even four in their life. And that's, you know, actually, that's absolutely mental as a stat. If you're a charity, that means every £100 that's donated, 20% is predetermined it's going to that whoever that person supports. Mm. And if you're a mental health charity um, in Manchester doing a specific job, that's most likely going to Mind. It's not coming to you because everyone knows who Mind are. If you're a cancer charity, it's going to Macmillan or Cancer Research UK or whoever it might be. So you've got to, you know, 25% of people then on top of that won't ever give to charity. So 45% of people have gone now. And that leaves sort of everyone else who's fighting over those other 55% of people who at best are going to give to four charities. Mm directly let's let's forget you know sponsoring your mate dave sure um who's doing a run because you're giving to dave not to the charity so actually i think charities kind of have to switch their mindset a bit and think how do we fight for that pound to come to our cause how do we make sure that someone gives us that 20 pound note or that tap of their card or enters their details onto our website and think like a retailer and actually get a bit more um, ballsy and about how we approach marketing and, and fighting for that money, because mm. actually without that money, you haven't got a charity you can't do the things that you want to do. So you, we, we have to sort of find a way of showing that we're more worthy than everyone else of getting that money. And, you know, I think, I think that mindset might actually, you know, if you, you think of yourself as a challenger brand, how do you disrupt the market? Chris Rushbrook, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely. A big thank you to Chris Rushbrook for sharing his insights, expertise and knowledge with us here at Charity Chat. I really enjoyed speaking with him and I'm sure that you would have uh, taken a lot from what he was saying his openness was both touching and thought-provoking, I thought. So uh, thanks again to Chris. Chris talks about his work in terms of framing the question or reframing the question that charities may be asking themselves and giving them a new perspective. 
This ties in with conversations we've had about taking a donor-centered approach to fundraising and the evidence that charities who are fast to respond to changing circumstances, such as the pandemic, um, have been able to create a better outcome for them, their fundraising and their beneficiaries too. In the world of fundraising, it's far more effective to focus on those who are more likely to want to support your cause. Not everyone will. The give and forget donors are numerous, but can they be encouraged to build a long-term relationship with the causes that they support on an ad hoc basis? We've spoken before about responding quickly to make the most of a brief and possibly fleeting contact with a supporter from the charity. There is a pressure which we can all see in the commercial sector, if we don't work in the charity sector, we can see it there too, to respond quickly, even instantaneously to customers or supporters. Many charities need to work smarter at doing this too. We probably all have experience of making a donation and not getting that timely, very quick thank you back and give us that little bit of a, a kick. So that's really important. Chris also mentioned the Donor Pulse report from Enthuse. Uh, there's a link on our website, check it out. Uh, it's very useful to look at these things, and I suppose get a perspective on what donors are looking for and what they're experiencing. Um, do have a look, see what your charity uh, could do to improve their approach. Chris also talks about digital natives, and I wasn't completely familiar with this term, but of course Gen Z. Um, may be overlooked by many charities and there is therefore a huge opportunity to engage an existing audience who will also exert increasing giving power over the next few years. We've spoken before about what younger generations are looking for in the brands they choose to support, including charities, and this segues nicely into diversity, which is of course one aspect of what people are looking for increasingly on the boards and within the uh, senior executive teams of the charities they want to support, and specifically diversity of charity boards. There are many reasons for diversity on the board of the charity. One is the benefit of having a young audience represented on boards and within decision-making hierarchies that can help to keep the charity in touch with the ever-moving, ever-evolving digital worlds and the audience living within them. After all, for charities and our causes to survive, thrive and change the world, we need to embrace the progress of technology and bring our agenda to it. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, fundraising platform Work for Good and the festive small business star match funding campaign. This year, there's a £50,000 match funding pot available. Head to www.workforgood.co.uk to sign up for free. I'd also like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lamp for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website, check it out at charitychat.org.uk and Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye.